بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد uh, We have a few announcements to make before we begin The first one is uh, for those sisters who are watching the connection via the video link The video is not playing very nicely today uh, the mobile connection is breaking between the, our video, the, the software that sends the video. So basically expect the video to be choppy today. Uh, expect the video to be a little bit choppy today. Uh, because the connection, for some reason, the signal is not, it's not strong enough to hold the video consistently. The second thing is, as you know, today we have Salatul Istisqa. Uh, at I believe 11.30, 11, 11.30 or 11 11.30 I think. Uh, and so we need to leave the masjid very quickly today because they will not be able to uh, clean the masjid and get the masjid ready in time. So especially the sisters, the request from the masjid is as soon as the class finishes, we would kindly ask all of the sisters to leave the sisters section so that they can immediately start cleaning that area. Because we're now taking like one hour away from their any cleaning time, and usually they can they, they have extra time. But because of the early uh, salah today, uh, they're gonna have to uh, clean the masjid more quickly. So they've requested from us, and we try to agree to these requests because at the end of the day, the masjid is cooperating with us in allowing us to have the classes here. Um, so my request would be kindly like the brothers and the sisters, we'll all, once the class finishes, we're not going to go on late today. Once the class comes to a conclusion, inshallah, we'll go outside. From outside, the brothers who have questions, we can stand and, and answer the questions, inshallah. Ta'ala. Did anyone do any research on these four people that... Uh, we don't expect any wisdom from them. Haris al-Darb wa Munadi al-Qadi wa Ibn al-Muhaddith wa Rajulun fi baladihi la yarhalu fi talab al-ilm. Did anyone come across any... We said to you to tell me why, why the son of the Muhaddith is not expected to have any... You don't get... You don't expect... You don't expect great things. Perhaps that's the right translation. Yeah. You don't expect great things from the son of a muhaddith. Why? If no one answers, I'm not going to answer. And Ujib. Did you do research on it or are you going to guess? I want someone who did research on it. Okay, we'll let you know. So you want to guess, inshallah, no problem. Not bad. They say Ibn al Muhaddith, they say that he is eclipsed by his father. So if you look at Abdullah ibn Ahmad, Rahimahumullah, Abdullah was a great scholar of Islam. How many of you know anything about Abdullah ibn Ahmad? And maybe you heard his name 
because oh he's the person who narrates from his father that's all you know about him yani most people if you say to them abdullah yani the son of al-imam ahmad they will say oh the one who narrated from his father that's all he's known for he was a great scholar a great muhaddith but he was eclipsed like the moon is eclipsed by the by the sun like the moon is eclipsed by the sun it's very hard if your father is a famous muhaddith it's very very hard for you to yani to become like him or famous like him because you just become known by by him now that's not always the case that's not always the case and nobody said that this statement that is narrated from Yahya ibn Mu'in rahimahullah ta'ala is an is wahi from Allah azza wa jalla and that it's absolute but it's certainly historically true that it's very rare that the son of a muhaddith or the son of a great scholar of Islam becomes known in his own right because everybody knows them in context of their father everyone knows them in the context of their yani of their father and they become yani somewhat eclipsed by the achievements that their father yani that their father achieved and it's hard for them to uh distinguish themselves from that especially because much of their teaching and their narrations will have come from their father in the first place and there are many examples of this if you look at all these famous scholars of hadith many of them had sons many of them had daughters but they had children who were any in their own right great scholars but you hear nothing about them or very little about them that is the explanation uh any of that part and obviously the man who who travels uh who who stays in his land and doesn't travel for the sake of hadith there is no doubt that this is perhaps of all of the four this is the most true of the four and this is the one that is the most true because somebody who stays in their city and doesn't travel for the sake of learning islam this person very rarely you will hear wisdom from them yani very rarely you will get a great benefit from them unless their city is a place of knowledge that's different for example the people who lived in baghdad when baghdad was a center of knowledge the people who lived in damascus when damascus was a center of knowledge the people who lived in cairo when cairo was a center of knowledge that's different because for them they just happen to be in the place everyone is traveling to but in general a person doesn't travel he only gets one side of the story one tiny piece of the story when he travels he opens his mind to a huge amount of information narrations that he hadn't heard before uh, opinions that he hadn't heard before yani knowledge about islam that he hadn't achieved before and he is able to really uh yani to become much more rounded as a person when he travels for the sake of learning and especially hadith in that time the time of yahya ibn ma'in when hadith had to be you know you can't look up the hadith on google and even wallahi even even in our time 
You look up a hadith on Google, you don't know what, how much tahrif is there, how many words have been changed, how many fatha has been made a kasra, and how many dhamma has been made a fatha. And you read a hadith, like the halal became haram and the haram became halal. Because you took it from where? From Google. You didn't take it from the mouth of the, of the ulama. Those who would have corrected those mistakes. Because they know those mistakes, like they say, you know, ala dhahri qalb, yani, from the, the hif that is in their heart. So when the book has a mistake in the print, the shaykh stops you. He says, it's a mistake. How, how many prints have you memorized? But he knows it in his heart. And he has the knowledge of grammar and the knowledge of hadith to know when these mistakes crop in. Otherwise you might get a print, let alone Google. Google is okay. I mean you might get a print of a book and the print might be like a poor quality print, a bad quality print. And in the bad quality print, words are added, words are taken away, sentences are missing, lines are missing, sometimes pages are missing. And you're, you know, you're reading through and saying, I've studied Alhamdulillah. Al-Aqeedah al-Tahawiyya, excellent Alhamdulillah, I've studied it with the explanation. And you, yani, they, they put words out, put words in, mixed words around, put this here, put that there, change this, change that. Because the print is not of a good quality. But if you had traveled and read that to a shaykh, the shaykh would have corrected you and said to you, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. No, this should be like this. So there's no doubt that when a person travels, and we said first of all, you take from what is available to you, when you travel for the sake of learning. And, and I, I want to make a point here that none of you should feel that's beyond you. Say, I work, I, but wallahi, subhanallah. Every one of us, in general, most of us are able, for example, to go to Umrah. Instead of just going to Umrah for the sake of just the Umrah, and you know, like the, the ibadah of praying in the Masjid al-Haram, try to go at a time where there's a class of one of the scholars. Some of the scholars have like dawrat ilmiyyah, like they have like certain times in the year where they will do like a full week of of classes every day like for a few hours a day like two three hours a day so why not as you build your arabic up go there or you're going back to your home country and many of us are from countries and not me but some of us are from countries where there are ulama major ulama like india like pakistan where there are major major scholars of islam in those countries and somebody goes back to india for example for four weeks he never goes to that sheikh he never goes to read a book to him or to listen to a book from him or to study some of the things. And he like, it's not beyond any of us to, to go and to travel for the sake of study. You go for a work trip somewhere and you go on business to a certain country. Find out who are the tulab al-ilm, who are the shiukh in that country. Where can I take, who can I take a book from? Even in the English language, the people are not the same. And even in the English language, the, the level of the students is not the same. You can find much, much better than Muhammad Tim in the English language. So you find you're going to, for example, I don't know, maybe you're going to London on business. Ustad Abdurrahman Hassan is there. And he's more knowledgeable than me. And he has better 
more, he's, he's better or, or more well read than I am. Go on, he's studying, he's teaching books every day. You go and you stop off, you do a book. But the only person who does those kind of things is the one who has ulul himma. The one who his himma is high. His energy and his dedication to learning is high. Otherwise he says, Wallah, Friday morning is hard, man. Yani, I've got work and you know, I have to travel all the way from Deira. Yani, like, as if it's like the other side of the world. Ten minutes travel in the car and he says, Wallah, ba'id. It's far, man. Wallah, I live in the south. I live in, in Al-Barsha. I have to travel a whole 25 minutes to get here on a Friday morning. It's really difficult. This is the person who, has, who is da'if al-himma. Their himma is not strong. The person who their himma is strong, Wallah, forget Abu Dhabi, Ra'as al-Khaimah, he will travel across the other side of the world for the sake of learning. Because he has energy to learn. He wants to learn. So it's not beyond even you guys, even if you say my Arabic is not good, I can't listen to the shiyukh. Wallah, even if you went to, for example, Umrah, for example, and many of you can understand the Urdu language. Sheikh Wasi'ala Abbas is there, teaching in the Urdu language. Go to his classes, meet him after the class, say, Sheikh, I've come, can I study some things from you? Can I listen to some things from you? Can I read a book to you? And can I read a hadith to you? This is for the person who has Uru al the one who really wants to learn. And like they said, I mean, they said in the olden days among the Salaf, Two people will never gain knowledge. The one who is too shy and the one who is too proud. And this, my problem is, I have this issue. Yani, wallah, it's a nasiha to myself. I'm, I'm too shy, wallah. Like, I feel very shy to go to a sheikh and say, sheikh, can I read this? Can I do this? Can I, like, and push him, yani. Because I know how busy he is and I feel shy to do it. But wallah, it stops you from a lot of knowledge, yani. I see some of the brothers, they were just like, I mean, one of the brothers, he just came for like a week. Already he met like so many of the, of the shuyukh in Emirat, like the major shuyukh uh, in, uh, in UAE. And he's like, I made this one, I read this to him, and I did this to him, and I followed this one, and I made him take me around the book fair, and this one did this, and this. And he like, he really asked for it. And wallah, and it's true. The person who is too shy, and the person who is too proud, they don't gain like a good amount of, uh, of knowledge. So it's within everyone's capability when you are, you know, traveling, let alone dedicated travel, to combine, you know, your annual leave with a little bit of learning, to combine your, uh, to combine your Umrah trip with some study, to combine a business trip with a, a visit for an hour to one of the shiukh. Say, Shaykh, well, I came on business, but I just want to, I came to hear a benefit from you. And you teach me something that will benefit me. Or, or tell me when you have a class so that I can, I can come while I'm on my business trip. SubhanAllah, how much knowledge. And that shows also, SubhanAllah, some of us, it's a strange thing. We came from countries where there's a lot of knowledge. And we traveled here and we only started learning when we came here. That's also true. Any, but you can find any, like even you go back like, to, to those countries, you can find a lot of scholars, big scholars, which you can learn from. And the, the advantage is they will also speak the same language as you, generally, and broadly the same language, or you'll be able to understand the language they speak. 
Subhanallah, the, the opportunity is there. But the shaitan says, when I speak fluent Arabic, I will go. And the shaitan says, when, you know, like, inshallah, when I have a bit more time, when the time is not so cramped, I will go. And when family is a bit more settled, I will go. Until he dies saying, inshallah, next week I will go. You have to show your, your energy for this. And those who are not able to travel, Alhamdulillah, Allah Azza wa Jalla has given us the ni'mah of, of the fact that now you're able to listen to lectures. You can listen to lectures in the Masjid al-Haram, like, any, as soon as they happen. While you're sitting in your living room, Wallah, I don't have time, I have work. This is the problem. I mean, the shaitan comes up with so many excuses, he whispers into your ear that why you can't do something. We've told you before that, uh, for example, Ustad Abdurrahman, he has Al-Madrasa Al-Umariya, where he has like, I think, over 90 books from beginning to end. How many books we've done in Essentials? We haven't finished any one all the way through, any, probably. Maybe we've done 15 books. There are 90 books there for you on YouTube. Just press play and listen. Well, it's hard to understand. I don't get that. I don't know the accent. I find it hard. Like, well, there's a lot of excuses you can make. But the one who his himma is aliyah, the one who has high aspirations, they will not find it difficult to do talibul ilm. They'll find a way from this way or from that way. Like from one way or from the other way, they'll find a way to do it. And mashallah, you guys come here. I'm not saying you don't do anything. Mashallah, you come on a Friday morning, you come here. Many of you come to other classes as well. But work hard. Because the Arabs said, and this is an ancient saying of the Arabs, man jadda wa jad. Whoever man jadda, and whoever works, and he pushes himself, works really hard, wajad, he'll find what he's looking for. Whoever works hard will find what they're looking for. So this is an advice to myself, first of all. Because wallah, the same thing happens after you learn. You learn something, because learning doesn't stop. Yani you learn something, you did a rihla for talab al-ilm, you did a few years somewhere, you get excited, you come and then you do nothing. Yani. So what happens? Your knowledge goes, your knowledge decreases. So this is also, a pro- yani I'm also yani for myself. And it's really important, and we, we get that energy to go out and to, to study, to learn, to find people, and not to be from those people, yani, sahib al-i'tidhar, yani, the person who's just got excuses. And the only thing they have is just like a, a nice collection of excuses. Oh, my internet is not good, I don't have this, I work long hours, I travel, I do this, I do that, I can't study. I've told you in the previous essentials about Hafid al-Hakami, Rahimahullah ta'ala, Al-Imam Al-Allama, Hafid al-Hakami, the one who wrote that amazing book of Aqeedah, Ma'arij al-Qabul, the explanation of his poem, Sulam al-Wusul, fi ila ilm al-Usul, fi tawheedi wa tiba'i al-Rasul. It's an amazing book. Hafid al-Hakami was, uh, he was a shepherd, yani. And him and his brother used to look after their, their farm or their animals. And his, I believe his, his, it was his mother, because I believe his father had passed away. 
she did not give him permission to go and study. So what did he used to do? He used to send his brother to go and study and bring me back the book, one, like borrow a book. He couldn't even afford to buy a book. And he borrow the book, come back and tell me what the Shaykh said about the book. Then he met Sheikh Abdullah Al-Qara'awi Rahimahullah Ta'ala, one of the major scholars of that time. And Sheikh Abdullah said to, he said, we will go to your parents or to your mother and we will ask her to allow you to come and study because he was so, such a genius at, at studying. So he went and the, his mother still said no. She said, no, I'm sorry, I won't. He said, I will pay for someone to take his place. She said, no, I, I want him. So in the end, he used to get one day a week to go and study. He only used to study one day. The only day he gets is just one day a week. That's his day off. He just gets one day a week. And in that time, he became one of the major scholars of his era. Because he had ulul al-himmah. had high aspirations and energy and dedication and hard work. Like if, I can't, if I can't afford to buy the book, I'll borrow the book. If I can't borrow the book, I'll ask the, my, someone to go and read the book and tell me what it says. If I can't do that, I will ask, invite one of the teachers if he can come to see me. If I can't do that, I will try to get one day a week. If I can't, you see like there's no, there's not all of these a'adhar. And all of these excuses and I'm sorry, I can't do it. I couldn't, I'm too busy. Hard work. One day a week. And he became a major scholar from the scholars of Islam whose biographies are well known and whose books are read in the masajid. It's not beyond you, you just have to find that energy. Okay. We came on to or we're concluding our discussion with regard to how the sunnah was written down and how the sunnah was recorded. So we're talking about the time of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. And the first point that we have in the Sahaba is encouraging the students to memorize and encouraging them to write down. Even if they then told the students to erase what they had written. Like some of them used to tell their students, write down, once you have memorized, erase what you have written. And they used to, and from, from the people this is narrated from, is from Ali ibn Abi Talib. That he used to tell the people, or he used to tell his students, to support their hift by writing. And we've mentioned some of the Sahaba who used to write a hadith, but they used to tell their students to write. Even if some of them used to say, erase what you have written. But they used to tell their students to write and to, and to, to confirm and affirm their knowledge through writing. The second way that the Sahaba preserved the sunnah in terms of writing is that they used to write to one another with the sunnah. And from this is that Usaid ibn Hudayr al-Ansari radiallahu anhu 
wrote some of the ahadith and the judgments of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and sent it to Marwan ibn al-Hakam. Rahimahullah. So he wrote down some of the ahadith and he sent these written ahadith to so a sahabi writing down hadith and sending it to one of the tabi'een. And from this is that Jabir ibn Samurah radiallahu an wrote some of the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he sent it to Amr ibn Sa'id ibn Abi Waqqas when Amr requested this from him. So now you have the tabi'een requesting the sahaba to write down a hadith. You have the tabi'een saying to the sahaba, write me down some of the ahadith, especially as they see the sahaba dying and passing away, and that the numbers are becoming decreased, write me down some of the ahadith that you know. So Jabir ibn Samura wrote a collection of ahadith of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and sent them to Amir ibn Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas, and Zayd ibn Arqam wrote down some of the ahadith and sent them to Anas ibn Malik so now what do we have a sahabi writing to a sahabi so Zayd is writing ahadith and sending them to Anas ibn Malik and Zayd ibn Thabit wrote a hadith with relation to the issue of the uh, the uh, the grandfather and the inheritance I believe any to Umar ibn al-Khattab after Umar requested him to do so and Umar said write me down the hadith now usually these are cases where they were not in the same place they were not in the same city. So it wasn't like write me down because if they were in the same city, they would narrate to each other verbally because that was their custom at that time. But if they were in different cities, write it down for me and send it. And Samura ibn Jundub wrote the ahadith of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and sent it to his son Sulaiman. And Muhammad ibn Sirin, rahimahullah, the Imam, he said, in the letter of Samura to his son, there is ilmun kathir. There is so much knowledge. Now that shows you that Samura bin Jundub, radiallahu an, when he wrote this hadith, or these hadith, he didn't just write one hadith, he wrote a collection. Ibn Sirin said, in this Risala, in this letter there is ilmun kathir, there is so much knowledge. He wrote down a hadith and gave them to his son, Sulaiman. And that was passed on to the tabi'een, the likes of uh, Muhammad ibn Sirin, rahimahullah ta'ala. And Abdullah ibn Abi Awfa radiallahu an wrote some of the hadith of the Messenger of Allah, to Umar ibn Ubaidillah. So we see here that the Sahaba, even in that time, even when writing was, was rare, 
they still wrote a hadith to one another, especially towards the end of their lives. They wrote a hadith towards one another, or they wrote a hadith to be passed on to their children. If they thought, maybe my children and the memorization is not so common, people are relying more upon writing. So they would write down a hadith and give them, for example, to their children or to one of the tabi'een who requested it or to one of their students. As for them encouraging their students to write, Anas ibn Malik radiallahu an used to encourage his children to write down knowledge. And he would say, Ya Bani, Qayyidul ilma bil kitab. O my children, make knowledge firm. And he make knowledge, and he make your knowledge firm by writing. And he used to say, We did not used to consider knowledge the one who does not write down his knowledge. And he used to encourage and encourage his students and encourage the, his children to write down what they heard. And Al-Khatib narrated from a number of the students of Abdullah ibn Abbas that he used to say, قَيِّدُ الْعِلْمَ بِالْكِتَابِ خَيْرُ مَا قُيِّدَ بِهِ الْعِلْمُ الْكِتَابِ He used to say, make your knowledge firm by writing. The best way of making knowledge firm is by writing. And this is in which generation? Now he's talking to the generation of the, of the tabi'een. And from Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu an, that he said, قَيِّدُ الْعِلْمَ بِالْكِتَابِ that Umar radiallahu an said, make your knowledge firm by writing. And from Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu an, that he said, who will purchase knowledge for, from me for a dirham? Man yashtari minni ilman bi dirham. Who will purchase knowledge from me for a dirham? Abu Khaytham said, he would buy, yani he means, yashtari, صَحِيفَةً بِدِرْهَمْ يَكْتُبُ فِيهِ الْعِلْمِ He would buy what is we would call now note paper. They would call it like a, any, uh, like a parchment. They would buy a parchment for a dirham and write down the knowledge of Ali ibn Abi Talib. So people say nobody wrote until Imam al-Bukhari. What are all of these companions are telling their students? Buy, go and buy note paper, go and buy a parchment, write down what I say. And from the companions are those who had collections of ahadith written down. One of the companions who had a collection of ahadith written down is Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu an. He had a collection of ahadith about fara'id and as-sadaqah, fara'id and zakah. But these are difficult issues, fara'id and zakah. It's confusing, you can like, you, you know, it's that there are like, especially the zakah, to know exactly how, you know, the, the number for, for when you talk about camels and you talk about sheep and things like that. It's not easy. So Abu Bakr used to have a collection of a hadith written down, a sahifa, a manuscript of hadith written down. It contained 
الفرائض والصدقة inheritance عن زكاة and Abu Bakr it wasn't that he had memorized them but he used to give them to the zakah collector so from the hadith of Anas ibn Malik that Abu Bakr al-Siddiq sent me uh, either he sent me to give charity or to collect charity and he wrote me a book or he wrote me a, a letter or a script in which there were fara'id al-sadaqah the obligatory types of zakah and upon it was the seal of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and in it it was written these are the obligatory portions of zakah that the messenger of Allah sallallahu made obligatory to the Muslims so Abu Bakr wrote this for the sake of what? for the sake of giving to the zakah collector wallahu to give to the person collecting the zakah that this is how many camels you take and this is what to do and this is what type and this is and all of the ahadith were written down and from this is the sahifa of Ali ibn Abi Talib and Al-Khatib and Ibn Abdul Bar narrated with numerous narrations from Ali ibn Abi Talib that he spoke, he gave a speech to the people in which he said مَنْ زَعَمَ أَنَّ عِنْدَنَا شَيْئًا نَقْرَأُهُ لَيْسَ فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى وَهَذِهِ الصَّحِيفَةِ فَقَدْ كَذَبْ Whoever says or whoever lies against me by saying that I have some knowledge that I read in secret يعني meaning something secret some secret knowledge that puts me above Abu Bakr and Umar if I have some secret knowledge that I read that is not in the book of Allah and is not in this collection of hadith and this is the shahid and he had a collection of hadith then he has lied and Ali ibn Abi Talib used to say to the people what you people are saying about me that I have a virtue over Abu Bakr, that I should have been the Khalifa, that I yani have, that Ahlul Bayt are being oppressed, this is a lie. What I have is what is in the Quran and what is in this collection of ahadith. And in other narrations, he explained what was in it. He said, this, this, the collection of hadith used to be attached to his sword, he used to hang it around his sword. It used to have the relate any issues relation to the to the camels, the the uh, any the issues of re- relating to uh, the probably the zakah of the camels, and uh, issues relating to al qisas, so relating to um, any retro- punishment by retribution, so like a tooth for a tooth and a you know eye for an eye and stuff like that. And it had written in it the hadith that Medina is a haram, Medina is a sanctuary. What is between Ayr and Thawr? مَنْ أَحْدَثَ فِي فَمَنْ أَحْدَثَ فِيهَا حَدَثَ أَوْ آوَى مُحْتِثَ فَعَلَيْهِ لَعْنَةُ اللَّهِ وَالْمَلَائِكَةِ وَالنَّاسِ أَجْمَعِينَ It had written in it the hadith, Medina is a sanctuary, what is between Ayr and Thawr, the two mountains. So whoever innovates in it an innovation, or gives shelter to an innovator, so upon him is the curse of Allah and the angels and all of the people. 
And he had this whole hadith with its full narration written down in his sahifa that he used to keep hung on his, on his sword. Then we have the sahifa of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As. Known by a sahifa al-Sadiqah, the truthful manuscript. Mujahid said, I came to Abdullah ibn Amr. So I took from him his sahifa from under his, yani his mat. Or it could be his bed. I think under his mat, he means. He said, he did not used to stop me from doing that. Yani. He didn't say to me, don't narrate any of the knowledge that is in here. He said, This is the truthful manuscript. This is what I heard from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. لَيْسَ بَيْنِ وَبَيْنَهُ There was nobody between me and him. And these are the ahadith that I wrote. I didn't hear them from Abu Bakr. I didn't hear them from Umar. I heard them directly from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. All of these suhuf of Abu Bakr and uh, of Ali and of Amr, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As were written in the time of the Prophet sallallahu The one of Abu Bakr had the seal of the Prophet sallallahu upon it. And after uh, yani, uh, his, uh, his death, likewise the companions continued to write small manuscripts of hadith. From them was Abdullah ibn Abi Awfa, Al-Imam al-Bukhari mentioned in Kitab al-Jihad, uh, or mentioned it in Kitab al-Jihad, in the chapter of As-Sabr and Al-Qital, patience when yani, the battle is going on, patience during battle. He mentioned that Abdullah ibn Abi Awfa had a sahifa, and this hadith is narrated from, or part of it is narrated from the sahifa, the manuscript of a hadith that was collected from Abdullah ibn Abi Awfa, and the sahifa of Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, and the sahifa of Jabir ibn Abdullah, and the sahifa of Hammam, Ibn Munabbi' who narrates from Abi Hurairah. So this was not written by Abu Hurairah, but it was written by one of his students who narrated from him. And whatever Abu Hurairah would narrate, he would write it down and he collected a, and he collected some papers, some, some scripts, some parchments with the ahadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu ta'ala anhu arda. Now someone may say, where are these suhuf today? Where are these parchments today? These parchments are preserved in the books of hadith. Because obviously, as you know, it's not like they had like a, they saved it on the computer. You know, they're written on parchments. These things, they decay, they get, you know, they get lost, they get passed on. So what happened? People also memorized them. And people passed them on. And some of the ahadith you can see, like the ahadith of uh, Amr. Uh, ibn Shu'ib and Abihi and Jaddi are narrated from the Sahifa of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As. They're narrated from the from the, the manuscript of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As. So you can see that these are preserved in the books of hadith. They're preserved in the books of hadith. We heard Imam al-Bukhari mentioned in Kitab al-Jihad from the Sahifa of so-and-so. 
These were preserved in the books of hadith. They were passed down. But to expect them to be present, you know, 1400 years later, when they were not like, it's not like the Sahaba, and they used to write on, you know, it's not like they used to have high quality notepaper. And they used to write on any pieces of parchment, pieces of any leaves and things like that. And they did not used to have like high quality notepaper. But they were preserved. The tabi'een learned them, memorized them, wrote them down, passed them on. And much of these written ahadith from the time of the Sahaba were preserved. And the tabi'oon did the same. Including encouraging their students to write down. So from this is what a shabi used to say. Amir al-Sha'bi Rahimahullah ta'ala from the tabi'een He used to say إِذَا سَمِعْتَ شَيْئًا فَاكْتُبْهُ وَلَوْ فِي الْحَائِطِ فَهُوَ خَيْرٌ لَكَ مِنْ مَوْضِعِهِ مِنَ الصَّحِيثَةِ فَإِنَّكَ أَوْ فَأَنَّكَ تَحْتَاجُ إِلَيْهِ يَوْمًا مَا he said, if you hear something, write it down even if it is on the wall. And if you hear a hadith, write it down even if it is on the wall. He said, this is better than writing it in a parchment because you may need it one day. And from Al-Hasan Al-Basri, that he said, ma qiyid العلم بمثل كتاب. He said that no, no, not knowledge is never made firm by anything as good as writing. We only write in order that it, uh, in order that we may remember it or we may return to it. يعني the meaning of نتعاهد يعني التعاهد يعني either we may return to it again like we may revise it or return to it again and make our memory strong and from Sa'id ibn Jubair that he said I used to write in the presence of Ibn Abbas on my parchment until I filled it then I would write on the back of my sandals on the top of my sandals in the bit next to my foot I would write on the top of my sandals then I would write on my palm And he Sa'id ibn Jubair, in the presence of who? In the presence of Ibn Abbas. He said, I would take a parchment, I would come to Ibn Abbas with a, with a plain piece of parchment, piece of paper. And I would start writing until the whole paper is full, front and back, even the sides, up and down. Then I would say, okay, I have no choice now. Take off his shoes and he would write, and he would go barefoot. And he would write the hadith on the inside of his shoe. Then when he ran out of space on the inside of his shoe and Ibn Abbas is still telling him a hadith, he would write them on his hand. And from Salih ibn Kaysan, that he said, me and Az-Zuhri gathered together so that we could seek knowledge. We came together so we could seek knowledge. So we said, let us write down the ahadith. Let us write down the sunnah. So we wrote what came from the Prophet ﷺ. Then we said, let us write what came down from his companions. Because it is also a sunnah. 
any from the things which the companion said and presumably there is no disagreement in it among the companions any i said it's not a sunnah so we will not write it he said so he wrote and i didn't write and he was successful and i became lost And when they disagreed, they said, let us write down what we hear from the Prophet ﷺ. So they, they wrote that. Then they differed, should we write down what we hear from the companions or not? He said, it's not a sunnah. And what comes from Abu Bakr is not a sunnah. What comes from Ibn Abbas is not a sunnah. It's a qawl sahabi. And you know in usul al-fiqh, there are a lot of opinions about the qawl of the sahabi. Do, how, when do we take it? When do we not take it? Is it a proof in of itself or it's only a proof in certain circumstances? So Salih ibn Kaysan said, I'm not going to write the, the opinions of the Sahaba. I'm only going to write the hadith. And Az-Zuhri said, no, it's a sunnah. I'm going to write the opinions of the Sahaba. So Salih said, فَأَنْجَحْ وَضَيَّعْتْ And he, was, he went on to success, and I went on to any failure. And that's from his humility. And from Az-Zuhri that he said, If it were not for ahadith that come to us from the East that we reject and we do not know, I would not have written down hadith and I would not have allowed anyone to write. This is very important. What is Az-Zuhri saying? He's saying, I would prefer people to rely upon memorization, but there's a problem. These ahadith are coming now in droves, you know, like there are piles of these ahadith coming from the east, from where? From Persia, from Iraq, with lies in them, with fabrications in them, with words changed in them. So for that reason, as Zuhri wrote down and he allowed his students to write down, from the time of the tabi'in, from the small tabi'in, the younger tabi'in. And there's no doubt that the time of the tabi'een, the writing was more than it was during the time of uh, the sahaba. And there were reasons why the tabi'een were more compelled towards writing than the sahaba. Why did more of the tabi'een write? Number one, that the riwayat became spread out. And the asaneed became long. And the names of the people became difficult. So before, you have everyone in one place. Everyone is in Medina, more or less. And some a little bit further, but generally everyone's around that area in the time of the Sahaba. They know each other's names. They have, you know, it, the chains are short. It's easy to remember. But now we start to get to the time of the Tabi'een. The chains are getting longer. You know, sometimes the chains are going up and down. You know, like we heard in the hadith of, in, in the Athar of Shu'bah. This chain is going all the way up and all the way down. It went all the way up and now it went all the way back down. So this needs writing to establish these chains, like to keep these chains, uh, you know, comfortably in memory. And many of the Huffaz were dying. From the Sahaba and from the major tabi'een, the kibar tabi'een, 
And when they saw that, the, the, the tabi'een became scared. They said, Hifth is preserving our religion, but what will we do if the Huffal die? Hifth is, is, our religion is being preserved by Hifth, alhamdulillah. But what will we do if our Huffal die in battle? Or from old age? What shall we do? We had better start writing more ahadith down. And Hifth became weak. Because as you know, the, when I say weak, I mean Hifth became like, they were Huffal, but I mean Hifth became comparatively weak. As more and more people learn to write. You have to remember the Sahaba in, in general. They, as Allah Azza wa Jal said, He is the one who sent in among the illiterate people, Rasulam minhu, a messenger from among them. So what was the status of them? Any Those companions, they were ummiyun, most of them, many of them were ummiyun. They were not able to write. Once you get to the age of yani, the Khulafa al-Rashideen, all of the children are being taught to write. Any yani, writing is becoming like it's a standard thing you're being taught to write. By the time of the Tabi'een, almost everybody can write. So that obviously reduces your dependence upon memorization. And for that reason, many people used to ask for their students to rip up what they had written. Memor like write it, revise it, memorize it, and then erase it. So that you don't become dependent upon writing. From the reasons that cause the tabi'een to do this is Zuhur al-Bid'ah and al-Kadhib. Lying and innovation became widespread in the time of the tabi'een. We know that innovations existed in the time of the Sahaba. Not from them, but in their time. Because we know Abdullah ibn Umar was told about the Qadariyyah in the hadith of Jibreel in Sahih Muslim. We know uh, that Aisha knew about the Khawarij when she said to that woman, Auntie, are you from the Khawarij? Uh, we know that Ani Ali ibn Abi Talib knew uh, and narrated a hadith about the Khawarij and came across them in his time. And so we know that the, the, the certain types of bid'ah were present during the time of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, not from them, but from the people around them. But by the time of the Tabi'een, bid'ah had become widespread in, in, in still they're from the golden generation, but comparatively, bid'ah had spread. And ahadith were narrated to support that bid'ah. There were ahadith narrated to support tashayyu', to support Shi'ism. There were ahadith narrated to support this, uh, the hatred of Ahl al-Bayt. An exaggeration regarding the people of Sham. And so there were ahadith narrated on both sides. Not by the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. And not by the practicing Muslims among the Tabi'een. But among some of the Juhal and the rabble who came along with the army of Ali ibn Abi Talib and the army of Muawiyah radiallahu ta'ala anhum. And he radiallahu ta'ala anhumah. And he, uh, from among the rabble, the, the, the foolish people who came along, who were not from the Sahaba, nor were they from the reliable tabi'een, used to fabricate ahadith. And ahadith about Ali, ahadith about Muawiyah, 
And I came across a children's book recently, and it was like a book that my kids were given. Oh, I read it. It was full of tashayya. It was full of Shiism. It was not written by Shi'i. It was written by a Sunni author. But it was full of tashayya. Full of sab of the, of, of, uh, yani, the family of Abu Sufyan. And, he, and narrations like that Marwan ibn al-Hakam was an apostate who lied about the, and who fabricated the Qur'an and so, so on. And, so. and this is written by a Sunni. This is written by someone who is, and he what? But he is Hatib Layl. And he collects firewood at night, just like this. Eyes closed, just picks anything that he has and puts it in his book. And things about Ali ibn Abi Talib exaggerating with regard to Ali ibn Abi Talib. Like Imam Al-Qahtani said, إِحْدَاهُمَا لَا تَرْتَضِيهِ خَلِيفَةٌ وَتَنُصُّهُ الْأُخْرَى إِلَاهًا ثَانِي There are two groups of extremes with regard to Ali ibn Abi Talib. One group was not happy for him to be the Khalifa. And the other one thinks he is a god besides Allah. This is the reality. And with regard to Ali ibn Abi Talib, Ahl al-Bid'ah is split into two groups. One of them hate Ali ibn Abi Talib. And the other one think that Ali ibn Abi Talib is ilahun thani, another god besides Allah Azza wa Jal. And like he said, To the hellfire, both of them will go. So you see, subhanAllah, even, and this is spreading, and lies, ahadith, fabrications. So now we have to write to make sure that our knowledge is preserved even more. So they start writing even more. And the other reason why the tabi'een wrote more is because the reasons not to write went away. What were the reason, main reason not to write? Two things. Weakness in writing, like inability to write accurately, it's gone. Now everyone can write accurately. And the fear that the Qur'an would be confused with the sunnah, gone. Now by now, yani the Qur'an has been, yani how many years have passed by? 50 years, 60 years have gone. 70 years, 80 years have gone. Since the Hijrah, yani the Qur'an is memorized in the hearts of the people and there's no chance of the Qur'an getting confused with the Sunnah. So when these causes had gone away, now what happens? Now the, the, uh, yani the Tabi'een start to write more. So which among the, who among the Tabi'een had manuscripts from among the Tabi'een was Sa'id ibn Jubair, the student of Ibn Abbas. And remember, these manuscripts are very valuable. Because these manuscripts, the only thing in them, they narrate directly from the Sahaba. In many instances. So these manuscripts, the Sahaba's manuscripts, narrate directly from the Prophet ﷺ. But these manuscripts narrate directly from the Sahaba. So already you now have even more manuscripts. And these manuscripts narrate, have only one step between the person who wrote them and the Prophet Sallallahu and that is a Sahabi. So Sa'id ibn Jubair had a collection which is bigger than the ones the Sahaba had, and in it contained the ahadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas. The Sahifa of Bashir, the student of Abu Hurairah, I must admit, I can't remember the pronunciation for his second name. If it is Nahik, I think it's Nahik. 
and not Nuhayk. I think it's Nahik, Bashir ibn Nahik, but I might be wrong about that. And he narrated from Abu Hurairah. So when Abu Hurairah would narrate hadith from the Prophet ﷺ, he would write them down. The Sahifa of Mujahid bin Jabr, the famous student of Ibn Abbas, about which Abu Yahya, Hinasi, he said, Mujahid used to go up to his room and he used to come out to me with a book and I would copy from it. Yani Mujahid used to go up to the, to, the, yani to the room of Ibn Abbas and he used to come out with a, a piece of paper full of, yani a parchment paper full of a hadith and I used to copy from it. The Sahifa of Abu Zubair, Muhammad ibn Muslim ibn Tadrus, Al-Makki, the student of Jabir ibn Abdullah, in which he narrated from Jabir and from other than Jabir, and from Jabir and from other people as well, from Jabir and other people in his Sahifa. The Sahifa of Zayd ibn Abi Unaysa, the Sahifa of Abi Qilabah that he dedicated uh, yani when he or he passed it on when he was away to Ayyub al-Sakhtiyani so Ayyub al-Sakhtiyani now you start to think about this you go through Bukhari narrates from someone narrates from, and then you get to Ayyub al-Sakhtiyani Ayyub al-Sakhtiyani where did he, did he get all of his hadith any from this, from this? No, Ayyub received a manuscript of a hadith that were written by Abi Qilaba and from Abu and Abi Qilaba wrote them directly from the Sahaba. So this shows you that these manuscripts are preserved. They are not like just words in a book. Many of the hadith, not all, but many of the hadith of Ayyub are from this manuscript of Abu Qilaba. And Ayyub himself had a manuscript of his own, not just the one of Abu Qilaba. Yani Ayyub ibn Abi Tamim al-Sikhtiyani had his own manuscript also. Hisham ibn Urwa ibn al-Zubair. So remember Urwa ibn al-Zubair is one of the main narrators from, from Aisha. Anha, because he had the virtue of being a mahram to Aisha. So for that reason, he narrated many ahadith from Aisha radiallahu anha. And he was half of fiqh, and he was from the major huffad. His memory was something else. And he took the ahadith of Aisha. His son, Hisham, wrote down the ahadith of his father, Urwa, that were narrated from Aisha, or, and from others, and not only from Aisha radiallahu anha, but a lot of them. And many, many others. These are just examples. These are just examples. But now we get to a very important time. Because we get to Al-Imam Al-Zuhri. And Imam Al-Zuhri is from Sigar Al-Tabi'in. From the young uh, of the Tabi'in. Yani the, 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 the last part of the Tabi'in. And the Imam, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, Rahimahullah Ta'ala The righteous Caliph Umar bin Abdul Aziz 
And the two of them had a major impact in the writing of the Sunnah. Because Umar bin Abdul Aziz made the first formal request for the Sunnah to be written down. Now this doesn't mean it wasn't written down, but where was it written down? Suhuf. Any parchments, pieces of paper. And Umar bin Abdul Aziz now has started a new thing, which is Jamar, Tadween a Sunnah, and gathering the Sunnah together into a book. And this started from Umar bin Abdul Aziz, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, and Al Imam Al Zuhri, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And we know that the two of them had a major impact in spreading the sunnah and prohibiting innovation. And every one of you should read the biography of Umar bin Abdul Aziz. If you haven't read it already, it's available in English also. There's a biography, I believe, published by Dar es Salaam, that you can read uh, in English also. And it's very important because the life of Umar bin Abdul Aziz, it has a lot of... It has a lot of benefits in it. At the same time, I warn you about an aqidah point, a small aqidah point, but it's worth noting. Don't equate Umar bin Abdul Aziz with the Sahaba, as some of them do. Like for example, I dislike those people who say that he is the fifth Khalifa Rashida. Why? Because you're taking away from Muawiyah radiallahu anhu. And Muawiyah was better than him. And from our aqidah without a shadow of a doubt is that Muawiyah radiallahu was better than Umar bin Abdul Aziz. Because Muawiyah was a Sahabi. And the Sahaba individually and collectively are better than everyone who came after them. And every individual of the Sahaba, fardan fardan, every individual among them is better than anyone who came after them. Better than the four Imams, better than the, than Umar bin Abdul Aziz, better than the Imma of, of, of Islam. Every single individual Sahaba or Sahabi is better than everyone who came after them. And so be careful not to take away from the status of Muawiyah radiallahu anhu. Now we know that the Khilafah Rashida lasted until Ali bin Abi Talib. And that Muawiyah radiallahu anhu his Khilafah was the beginning of the phase of kingship, of passing on to your children because he passed on to his son uh, Yazid, and so on and so forth. But Muawiyah as an individual, you cannot compare Umar bin Abdul Aziz with Muawiyah. Muawiyah is a Sahabi, you cannot compare the two. But why is Umar bin Abdul Aziz given this title of the, like the fifth rightly guided Khalifa? Because his Khilafah resembled the Khilafah of the four Khulafa al-Rashidin. Yani it was in resemblance, it was close to it. But still, this is not a good, like, it, it's not a good phrase to use. And I heard some of the ulama, yunkiruna thalik, yani they, like, yunkiruna ala thalik. Yani they say that this is like, they, they don't like people to say this. Yani. Like to say that he was the fifth rightly guided caliph. First of all, the Prophet ﷺ did not say this. The Prophet ﷺ said that the Khilafah al-Rashidah is until the end of the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib. That 40 years which is until the end of Ali ibn Abi Talib. In addition to Al-Hasan, for those of them who said that Al-Hasan is included, radiallahu anhu arda, is included in that. Because some of them said to complete the time 
of the 40 years the Prophet ﷺ mentioned, you have to take the, that period where Al-Hasan took the Khilafah from his, uh, yani from his father But at the end, yani, as we said, yani, uh, we, uh, the, there is no doubt that the Khilafah of Umar bin Abdulaziz re- resembled more the Khilafah of the Khulafa al-Rashidin. Because, but the Prophet never said that there will be Khilafah, then kingship, then yani, Umar bin Abdulaziz will come and he will be the fifth Khalifa Rashida. Yani. So it's, yani, these kind of statements, not like we know what people mean. The meaning is not wrong. The meaning is they want to praise how much his Khilafah resembled the Khilafah of the four Khulafa. But at the end of the day, yani, he uh, was... Uh, not a Sahabi, Allah, uh, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, even if he was, yani, according to the, yani, what seems to be apparent, he was the mujaddid of his time. And he was the one that Allah Azza wa sent to renew the religion for the people. Because as we know, Allah Azza wa at the turn of every hundred years, sends a mujaddid, someone to renew the religion for the people. And many of the scholars said, the closest that we can see, is that, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best, is that the one who came to renew the religion for the people was Umar bin Abdulaziz. Because he came and he returned things back to how they were in the time of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. And he returned the people back to that. Rahimahullah ta'ala. Al-Bukhari narrates in his Sahih from Abdullah Ibn Dinar, that he said that Umar bin Abdulaziz wrote to Abu Bakr ibn Hazm, saying, look at whatever you have from the ahadith of the Messenger of Allah and write it. For indeed I fear that knowledge will be lost and the scholars will go. And do not accept anything other than the hadith of the Prophet wasallam. And make sure that you, yani, you do taftish and you now you have to fetishu and you have to look into it and examine what is a correct hadith and what isn't. So Umar bin Abdulaziz is affirming, and now we need ulama of hadith. We need to know what is sahih, what is da'if, so that the people who don't know can know. And Umar bin Abdulaziz said, "Fa'inna al-ilma." Knowledge will not be destroyed or taken away until it becomes secret. Like when knowledge becomes secret and restricted to just a few people, that is when there is a danger of that knowledge going. But once the knowledge is written down and spread for everyone, then that knowledge is preserved for people. And Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri said, Umar bin Abdulaziz commanded us, to gather the sunnah together. Daftaran, daftaran, volume by volume. So now it's a different situation. It's not like, even in the first one, when he wrote to Abu Bakr ibn Hazm, he's still asking for parchments, manuscripts, you know, write down some ahadith. Tell me what is sahih, tell me what is da'if. But with Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri, what he's doing now is he's saying, I want you to gather the sunnah in volumes. I want you to put the sunnah together in volumes. He sent 
a message to everyone within his, or he sent to everyone in his land, to every governor, a book of the sunnah that was collected by Umar bin Abdulaziz. Who is he, who is he following in this? And who's, whose example is Umar bin Abdulaziz following in this? The example of Uthman radiallahu anhu with the Quran. Gather it together. And Uthman was gathered by Abu Bakr. But, yani, check the Sahih from the Da'if and then send to every governor of the Muslim lands one copy of the ahadith that Az-Zuhri gathered together from the Sunnah. Yani, and now you start to have, now this is the beginning of Tadween in the meaning of collecting books. So Tadween, as we've been talking, writing the Sunnah, We've been talking previously about writing individual ahadith, a collection, five hadith, ten hadith, twenty hadith, thirty hadith, uh, on pieces of paper, on different, you know, like parchments, things like that. But by the time now we've started, the time of Umar bin Abdulaziz and Az-Zuhri, now we have the time of collecting the sunnah in books. And from then on, it just kept on becoming more and more and more. And this is true of all of the sciences of Islam, Ikhwan. You should understand this. This is true of all of the sciences of Islam. That if you talk about the science of fiqh, the science of usul al-fiqh, the science of mustalah al-hadith, the science of aqidah, as books, they were not written in the time of the Sahaba, as books. They were there. We have the Sahaba purifying the people's aqidah. What did Ibn Umar say? If you meet them, then tell them that, uh, that Abdullah ibn Umar has nothing to do with them. They have nothing to do, I have nothing to do with them, and they have nothing to do with me. By the one whose hand Abdullah ibn Umar is in, his soul is in. If one of them gave the mountain of Uhud in gold, it would not be accepted from them until they believe in Qadr. What is this? Aqeedah. And Abdullah ibn Umar is teaching Aqeedah. But was there a book of aqidah that says, you must believe in Qadr, you must believe in this, you must be... No, this is present in the hadith and present in the Qur'an. But nobody wrote a book, Al-Aqidah Al-Tahawiyah, Al-Aqidah Zon-Su'in, as a book. Because this issue of bringing things together in books, Aslan, you're living in a time where writing is not even common. You're living in a time where even putting the Qur'an in the book, the Sahaba diff differed over it. In the time of Abu Bakr, as you know, before they reached consensus, some of them said Abu Bakr, they did not want to put the, Abu Bakr did not want to put the Qur'an into a book form. He said, I do not, I do, I do not want to do something that the Messenger of Allah Wasallam didn't do. Until Umar kept on telling him and telling him and telling him, until he said, my heart opened to it. So the whole issue among the Sahaba was that in the first place, they didn't put things in books in the, in the first place. Yani even the Qur'an was a matter that they discussed among themselves before they put it in a book form. But once writing became common, the natural step is that by the end of the time of the Tabi'een, by the end of the time of the Tabi'een, you now have the Sunnah in book form. The whole Sunnah? No. This is where people make a mistake. And you had all of the hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari were in book form? No. Still there were ahadith being narrated by memory, but you started to have people coming together and saying, what parchments do you have? What parchments do you have? Let me put them all together into a, into a book. And a Darimi narrated 
from Umar ibn Abdul Aziz that he wrote to the people of Medina. Why to the people of Medina? We'll see how many of you are Maliki. Al-Ihtijaj bi-fi'l ahl Medina. That the proof of the people, yani the pro- there is a proof in the actions of the people of Medina. Uh, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz wrote to the people of Medina because Medina was a place of Sunnah. Medina was a place of Sunnah, as opposed to, for example, Al-Iraq and places like this, where Bid'ah was Muntashira. Yani. Bid'ah was very, very like common in those areas. In the outlying areas of the Islamic Empire, Bid'ah was, you know, it was there. Medina was still a place of Sunnah. Some of the people said, when an Imam Malik said that the action of the people of Medina is a proof, I believe it was Ibn Taymiyyah ta'ala, but I'd have to check, who said Bid'ah had not entered the city of Medina when Imam Malik said that statement. There was no thing such as, as Bid'ah within the city of Medina when Imam Malik made that statement. And so Medina was a place of knowledge and a place of Sunnah. So Umar bin Abdul Aziz wrote to the people of Medina, the scholars of Medina, saying, look at the hadith of the Messenger of Allah Wasallam and write them. Because I fear that knowledge will be lost and its people will pass away. I fear that knowledge will be lost and its people will pass away. So the people of Medina wrote down the ahadith for Umar bin Abdul Aziz. So it's not only Umar bin Abdul Aziz and Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri. Umar bin Abdul Aziz, at least three different people and probably many more than that, he requested them, write me the ahadith, bring me the ahadith. And make sure what you write is sahih. Make sure you take away the right that, you know, taftish, you do, a, you do examination. To make sure that this hadith is authentic. Bring them together for me on paper. They used to write to Umar bin Abdul Aziz. Umar bin Abdul Aziz himself was an alim, a scholar of Islam. And a muhadith, a scholar of hadith. In the first place himself. So in the first place he had a hadith with him. Rahimahullah ta'ala. But on top of that, the scholars were around him because the scholars used to surround Umar bin Abdul Aziz. If you look at the other khulafa, the other uh, yani, caliphs from Bani Umayyah uh, and, and Bani, Abba, uh, Bani Abbas, yani, if you look at the Abbasid and the Umayyad caliphs, the scholars generally kept away from them. They didn't used to, they didn't used to go and sit with them out of a fear, any khawf and dukhul al-Sultan, because entering the gathering of the Sultan is dangerous. It's dangerous, Wallah, because perhaps you would incline yourself to what the Sultan has out of power, out of money, and you would start to change your religion because of that. And you would start to tell the people that the halal is haram and the haram is halal. Or perhaps he would put them to trial and torture them or say something to... So for this reason, the scholars did not used to sit with the Sultan. And they used to warn against it. But with Umar bin Abdul Aziz, you would go to his gathering and it was full of scholars. Because they knew who is Umar bin Abdul Aziz. And in himself, he is a scholar in his own right. And they didn't fear what they feared from and he being covered by the dunya. What was Umar bin Abdul Aziz? He was the person who he lived in a, and he simple, he, he got rid of the palace and lived in a simple hut, and a simple house. Yani. He was, in terms of zuhd, in terms of keeping away from the dunya, you could not find the dunya with Umar bin Abdul Aziz. And if you went looking for a palace and the gold and silk, you will not find it with Umar bin Abdul Aziz. 
And he was very, very down to earth. It's narrated that someone came to his wife, I think her name is Fatima, uh, rahimahullah. And when the woman entered, there was a man in like rough clothes, and he was fixing the house. She said, fear Allah, you are the wife of the Khalifa, you have this strange man in the house. She said, this is Omar bin Abdulaziz. And he was fixing his, you know, fixing his house and living in simple dwellings and wearing simple clothes. So the scholars used to surround him. So the point is that there were many, many ahadith in this regard. And more than this, it's narrated that a Zuhri, uh, we said uh, that statement before about, uh, or we've mentioned both of those statements regarding a Zuhri before. And that, Ibn Abdul Bar said from Imam Malik that Imam Malik said the first person to now here it says Dawan yani to write down knowledge was Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri now if someone asks you about this how are you going to answer this the first person to write down hadith was a zuhri now we say that it depends what you mean by tadween Tadween is, to, is, to, is to, to write something or to formalize something. If by Tadween you mean writing in general, then a Zuhri was not the first person, rather the first person were the Sahaba at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. But if by writing down the Sunnah you mean collecting it in a formal book and gathering it together with chapters and order and yani like and and Tadween as in authorship Because the word Tadween It can mean writing It can mean authorship As in authoring That the first person to To actually gather together a book And to have This is a book of the sunnah from Which has a beginning And a middle And an end And is formally organized That first person to do that was Ibn Shihab Az-Zuhri With the command of Umar Ibn Abdul Aziz Rahimallahu al-Jami'ah And then we, you know, we can continue through the age of the Tabi'een, through the age of the generation that came after them, those who followed them, the Atba'u Tabi'een, the third any generation, the generation of the companions. Then we talked about the generation of the Tabi'een, and now the generation of the uh, Atba'u Tabi'een. And things developed in their time. So what do we see in the time of the next generation? We see that Tedween becomes even more specific. We said that Tedween can mean writing. And Tedween can mean putting a book together. So who was the first one to write? The time of the Sahaba. Who was the first one to put a book together? Az-Zuhri, the time of the Tabi'een. Who was the first person to write a book with chapters and with like a, like a contents and a foreword and a conclusion and you know like a like proper you know sort of ordering this came in the next generation after that which is a tadween bima'na at-tasnif like as in writing a book which is ordered and has chapter headings and has you know like 
books and chapters and sub-chapters and uh, paragraph headings and you know all of that kind of stuff. Sort of closer to the books that we know today, this happened in the next generation. Adding the opinions of the Sahaba into the books. Because the same reason that caused the Tabi'een to write down the Hadith, now the Sahaba are getting far away and the narrations are getting... So people are also writing books about the opinions of the Sahaba as well. Putting all of the Hadith that are together in one chapter. Az-Zuhri didn't do this. He didn't put all of the Hadith on the same topic on one page. But now you've got people going through and saying, let me put all of that hadith on one topic, on one page. And gathering what was left of the manuscripts that hadn't been written down. Because again, someone may say, what happened to those manuscripts? Where are those manuscripts from the time of the Sahaba? By this generation, there's a, there's a concern to go around and gather any manuscripts that are left from the time of the Sahaba and the Tabi'een and to write them into formal books that can be passed on. Some people who are famous for this, among the first, uh, Abdul Malik ibn Abdul Aziz ibn Juraj who died 150 years after the Hijrah. So what are we talking about now? We're talking about books being written 150 years after the Hijrah, with chapter titles and with all that hadith gathered in one place, 150 years after the Hijrah. Before that, because that's when he died. So someone says to you the first book of hadith was written 250 years after the Hijrah, you can see they're not even close to the mark. We can argue with them about the time of the Sahaba, but you say, now we have Ibn Juraj. Ibn Juraj died 150. He, and he wrote Musannafat, um, something that was an organized book collecting the hadith on one topic in one place. Muhammad ibn Ishaq, who died 151 years after the Hijrah, the famous uh, narrator in uh, Sirah of the Prophet Ma'mar ibn Rashid, who died 153 years after the Hijrah. Sa'id ibn Abi Aruba, who died 156 years after the Hijrah. Al-Awza'i, who died 156 years after the Hijrah. And look at the different countries, by the way. Uh, ibn Juraj was from Mecca. Ibn Ishaq, Medina. Ma'mar, Yemen. Uh, Sa'id ibn Abi Aruba, Basra. Al-Awza'i, Al-Sham. So each of these are like the first people in each area to start writing. So like they may say, who is the first person to write a musannaf? Like to write a formal sort of book with chapters and gathering the ahadith together in one place. And in each area there was a different person. So in Sham, Al-Awza'i. In Yemen, uh, Ma'mar. In Basra, Sa'id ibn Abi Aruba. In Makkah, Ibn Juraj. 
in Medina, Muhammad ibn Ishaq. Also in Medina after him, Muhammad ibn Abdurrahman ibn Abi Dhib. 158 years after the Hijrah. Uh, Shu'ba ibn al-Hajjaj al-Wasiti. 160 years after the Hijrah in Basra. Sufyan al-Thawri in Kufa. 161 after the Hijrah. Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad. 175 after the Hijrah in Egypt. So the first, yani one of the first people to start writing formal books of hadith. In Egypt, Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad. And Hamad ibn Salama ibn Dinar. Hamad ibn Salama ibn Dinar in Basra. 176 years after the Hijrah. And then we come to Al-Imam Malik in a hundred and 79 and after who passed away 179 after the hijrah in medina and we can continue on from there abdullah ibn mubarak in khurasan khurasan is that yani area uh, to the east yani the area of persia uh, the area of, it's a particular area of Persia, like it covers part of what is Iran and some of what is like the area of um, any Uzbekistan, those sort of places, any like the, in the, the, what was then the far east of the Muslim empire, Khurasan, Abdullah ibn Mubarak, 181 after the Hijrah, he passed away. And uh, Jarir ibn Abdul Hamid, uh, Jarir ibn Abdul Hamid, in Array, Array, 188 after the Hijrah. And Abdullah ibn Wahab in Egypt, 197 after the Hijrah. And Sufyan ibn Uyayna in Mecca, 198 after the Hijrah. That doesn't mean they didn't all live together, and it doesn't mean they all wrote, and this is the, these are the years they died. So, and he, well before that, it's been written. Waqi'a. Ibn, Jarr- Ibn al-Jarrah al-Ru'asi in Kufa 197 years after the Hijrah and al-Shafi'i in 204 years after the Hijrah in Egypt and Abdul Razak Ibn Hammam al-San'ani in San'a in Yemen 211 after the Hijrah by now, I, mean, I think everyone knows we kind of reached now the time of, I and mean, we came to the time of Imam al-Bukhari and the time of Imam Muslim, and, and then it becomes easy. But there are 19 people who wrote formal books, not just wrote on pieces of paper, they wrote collected formal books of hadith, all of them before al-Bukhari and Muslim. And from that, of course, probably the most famous of the books that was written in that time is the Muwatta of Al-Imam Malik, rahimahullah ta'ala. But that's no, by no means the first. In fact, Al-Imam Malik was preceded by, yani, in terms of the date of death, by something like yani, almost 30 years. 
between of, of, that he was preceded by people writing musannafat before him people writing books before him and that takes us to any what we wanted to understand any hopefully i mean it, we haven't covered the whole book the book that we uh, were just taking a lot of this from uh, the book is called i will give you the title in arabic it's called tadween as-sunnah an-nabawiyyah tadween tadween is this word we've been talking about like authoring or writing down or the recording of the prophetic sunnah by a sheikh doctor muhammad ibn matar al-zahrani And this is just one of the books. I gave you on the recommended le reading list, I think it's on the Kalima website, uh, there is a book by Sheikh Al-Albani, which is translated into English on the topic of Tadween, As-Sunnah, how the Sunnah was written. And likewise, one of the best books for those of you who want to read further and gain a lot more knowledge is the book of uh, Muhammad Mustafa Al-A'zami. Now I'm going to spell it for you in English because if you want to get the book in English, it's spelled A-Z-A-M-I, Azami. But it's, his name in Arabic is Al-A'zami. Muhammad Mustafa Al-A'zami. This was originally written in English and then translated into Arabic. It's one of the rare books that it was written into English, then the Sheikh translated it into Arabic. It was written as a PhD thesis for I believe Cambridge University, but it might have been Oxford, it was either Oxford or Cambridge. It was written as a PhD thesis, and it is called Studies in Early Hadith Literature. And really the Sheikh went up against the Orientalists to prove that the Sunnah was recorded authentically Yani, to prove yani, that what we have in the books of the Sunnah is authentically recorded. And it is an amazing book. It's one of the rare books that is available in English to start with. And he has a summary of it. He has like a, a shorter version. I've forgotten what that's called. But he has a shorter version that's like 90 pages or 100 pages. He has like a proper version which is like a, a, a thick, like thesis thickness. Uh, but you want the proper one, yani. Really you'll benefit and you read through it You'll benefit from a lot more knowledge about how the sunnah was protected and preserved But you see and I just want to touch upon this first for, I, We're going to try and finish at half past eight So I just want to even though we started at quarter two uh, Just for the purpose of getting everyone ready for al-istisqa um, I just want you to reflect upon something How the enemies of Islam and those people who hate the sunnah how they manipulate the facts in order to make it seem that the sunnah was not written down and preserved. First of all, they bring you an assumption that writing equals preservation. That's the first assumption they bring you. That anything that wasn't written down hasn't been preserved. So the first thing we challenge them on before they even start is we say, I'm going to even challenge you on your asl, on your, the core that you are using as your basis for this argument 
which is that writing equals preservation. That's the first thing. The second thing we say to them is, why do you then believe the Qur'an has been preserved? I mean, what makes you think the Qur'an has been preserved? How is that any different? The riwayat that we read in the Qur'an are passed down. The Hafs and Asim, it's passed down through. And when did uh, Imam Hafs or Imam Asim, when did they live? They were, they were not from the yani, time of the Sahaba. So how do you know that the Qur'an has been preserved then? Because they will tell you, I have no doubt in the Qur'an. But this sunnah, it hasn't been preserved. You say, you aslan don't know the Qur'an before you don't know the sunnah. You don't even know how the Qur'an was preserved in the hearts of the people. What preserved the Qur'an was not writing to begin with. It was, uh, initially, what was preserved in the hearts of the people. And especially the fact that the Mus'haf of Uthman can be read many different ways. You could read it a hundred different ways. Who says that the way that we read it today is the way that it was? The narrations that were passed down and the memorization that is in the hearts of the people. This is the first thing. So we said the first thing is we challenge them, is we challenge them that your principle that writing equals preservation is wrong to begin with. So your whole concept is wrong. Then we challenge them on the issue of the fact that why do you make a difference between the Qur'an and the Sunnah in this? Yes, there's no doubt the Qur'an was written earlier. There's no doubt that it, is, it was more widespread than the Ahadith. But the, the idea that the Qur'an was free of people memorizing it and the reason we've got it preserved is because it was written down, that's not... Like for someone who knows the Qur'an, that, that argument just doesn't work. The third thing we say to them is, what do you mean by written down? If you mean a formal book, then we'll say to you that by 150 years after the Hijrah, there were formal books of the Sunnah. If you mean that a hadith was written down, then from the very earliest time of Islam, a hadith were written down. Then again, they will ignore the role of checking and cross-checking and traveling for the sake of knowledge, and checking people's memory. People were checking memory in the time of the Sahaba. The Sahaba were checking each other's memory. Aisha checked the memory of Abu Huraira and of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As. Abu Huraira when he read the ahadith to her outside of her apartment. Likewise, Umar radiallahu anh checked the memory. Ibn Abbas checked the memory of people. The science of al-jarh al-ta'adil, criticizing narrators, and approving of them was founded by those individuals from the Sahaba. And first of all by the Prophet ﷺ. But after that in a major way by the likes of Aisha and Umar and Ibn Abbas and the likes of them. The caution of the Sahaba in narrating a hadith if they hadn't memorized it. All of these things come together. You know, your basic foundation you explain to them and then you say now I'm going to strengthen it. I built my, I built my house. But now I'm going to show you how it can be strengthened. The cross-checking, the checking of narrators, comparing one narrator to another. Talab ulul isnad, looking for the high chain of narration, comparing the high one to the low one. Now we know the people in the low chain have memorized because the people in the high chain said the same thing. And all of these cross-checks and balances, we've only just touched upon them. And people who spent their whole life doing this, you come to the end of that and you don't have any doubt 
that this sunnah has been preserved letter by letter. And there are other doubts that they will bring and other things because of course the way shubahat work, it's like trying to catch an eel. You know, like you get it and it just slips out of your hand. You get it again and it slips out of your hand. You explain to them, they say, yeah, yeah, you're right, actually, you're right. But what do you say about the different riwayat? Why is it that in Bukhari one of them said this word and one of them said that word? And then you come onto the topic of a riwayat al-ma'na, the permissibility of narrating a hadith by meaning with certain conditions and, and those type of things as well. So, and then they answer that, they say, okay, yeah, but what about this? And you just keep going and they keep going and catching them you know, every time. The point is they're not going to, any very few of them are going to turn away from what they believe. But the point is to make you guys confident that this sunnah has been preserved. This sunnah has been saved and preserved like the Quran has been preserved. It's different in the sense that we don't need to cross-check the Quran. And that's a blessing from Allah Azza wa Jal. That we don't have to do that cross-checking and that rihla, traveling across the world to make sure. That's a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That the Quran is mutawatir. It's been narrated by so many people that we don't need to like cross-check it. But the ahadith, along with all of the checks and balances, and along with everything you've learned in Mustalah al-Hadith, uh, the looking for al-shudud and al-illa, looking for flaws in the hadith, and cross-checking the flaws in the hadith with other hadith, and checking the narrators against other narrators, all of this comes together, along with the writing of the sunnah, to make the case that the sunnah has been preserved absolutely yani, undeniable. And those who negated the sunnah are of many types. From them are those who negated the sunnah en masse. So among them are uh, yani, the Rafidah who negated the sunnah en masse. Yani, the Rafidah said yani, they don't believe in the sunnah from beginning to end. They only believe in the sunnah that... Uh, but it's funny, they don't believe in the sunnah from beginning to end, but anything that supports their madhab, yani, they believe in it. Yani. But in general, they don't believe in the sunnah. I mean, they reject the sunnah en masse. Likewise, the hadith rejectors, uh, among them various different groups known as the Qur'aniyun, um, and particularly in Pakistan, the group known as the, the Parveziyya, I mean, the Parvezis, those people who reject the hadith en masse. I mean, they reject the sunnah as being preserved from beginning to end. And this is kufr, la shak. This is kufr. And it takes a person outside of the religion of Islam, without a shadow of a doubt. And as for the Rafidah, they, they, they gather the nawaqid of Islam, all of them. And there is not a single naqid from the nawaqid of Islam except that the Rafidah bring it. And every single way you can leave Islam, they do it. And you go through the ways you can leave Islam, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you'll find all of them with the Rafidah. As for and some of them, the, the hadith rejectors, they are known for their... They are known for their yani, rejection of ahadith and their, yani, their rejection of the sunnah. And you see them, they have no rules anymore. They have no halal and haram. Even in the Qur'an. Wallah, even if you want to debate with them, you can say to them, fine, leave the sunnah, I will debate you with the Qur'an. Because as we heard in the beginning lessons, the Qur'an is full of commands to follow the sunnah. And how can the Qur'an tell us to do something that's impossible? How can the Qur'an say that you're going to get punished if you don't follow the sunnah, and then there's no sunnah to follow? Even when they say, for example, they pray three times a day, and they say that the Quran tells you to pray three times a day, Allah, look at the people. 
يعني they're like animals not بالهم أضل يعني they're more misguided than animals يعني the Quran tells you to pray five times a day if you go through the ayat of the salah in the Quran five times daily prayer is mentioned in the Quran أقيم الصلاة لدلوك الشمس إلى غسق الليل وقرآن الفجر this is five times but they look at the three أقيم الصلاة لدلوك الشمس pray your prayers starting at ظهر إلى غسق الليل finishing at Isha وقرآن الفجر and as well as فجر and then if you go to the other ayat that talk about the prayers, they fill in Maghrib and they fill in Asr, Hafidhu ala salawati wa salati al-wusta wa kumu lillahi qaniteen. You have Asr prayer in there, you have... And the Quran tells you to pray five times a day. But the reality is these people don't believe hatta in the Quran. Even in the Quran they don't believe in it, really. They, they, what they do is they believe in their own Ara'ita man ittakhadha ilahahu hawa. Have you seen the one who took his God as his desire? That's what they believe in only. But they want to justify their Islam by saying we believe in the Quran. And there are many other groups. And then there are groups that reject parts of the Sunnah. So they don't reject the whole Sunnah, but they reject parts. Among them are the Khawarij of old, not the Khawarij of new. Wallah, the Khawarij of new, we don't know what they believe. Wallah. They believe whatever they, yani, they just believe in, also they just follow their desires and they believe in... Yani, uh, we, it's even to classify their belief Apart from killing everyone and everything that doesn't agree with them yani We don't know what else they believe in But the khawarij of old They used to reject the sunnah that comes from Ali ibn Abi Talib and his Those who followed him And from Muawiyah and those who followed him Which leaves yani, almost nothing in the middle But anyway they used to reject that. But those who reject part of the sunnah, like those who reject the ahadith, which are ahad, from the mu'tazila, and those who follow them from the mutakallimun, who reject the ahadith ahad when they go against your intellect. They say, no, we accept the ahadith al-ahad when our intellect accepts them. And when our intellect doesn't accept them, we reject the ahadith which are ahad. The ahadith which are not narrated by so many people. Yani any hadith, you have to check the narrators. We reject it. If it's narrated about something that our intellect doesn't understand. And or many, many, many others yani, you will come across. So rejection of the sunnah is a fundamental part of bid'ah. It's a fundamental part of innovation. And almost no group from the innovators you will find except they reject part of the sunnah. Even some of the extreme people in the madhahib, like in following a madhab to an extreme where they will say, whatever my imam says is the truth, and nothing has come after the Qur'an as power, as strong as my imam statements and all of this ghulu and exaggeration, they say. Many of them reject the hadith of Abu Huraira. They say, absolutely, any hadith that comes from Abu Huraira, we reject it. say, why? say, he memorized too many hadith. say, okay, why? say, it goes against our imam. So we've come to know that because Abu, ha- Abu Huraira contradicts Abu Hanifa, definitely Abu Hanifa is right. Leave the hadith of Abu Huraira. Ah, Allah, this is ghulu, exaggeration, and foolishness. Yani. So you see rejection of hadith across the board to a small degree or a greater degree. And the purpose of this module is just to give you a little bit of yani, information to, contact, to, con- to counter that. Even if you don't have all of the tools to answer everything, but at least you have a base to know in yourself that when one of them comes to you with his shubahat and he says, yeah, you know, you people are following a religion that was written 300 years. You blame the Christians for having the council of Nicaea. 
you know, like 300 years after the death of Jesus and then deciding there's a trinity, you people did the same. 250 years after the, the Hijrah, you decided to change your religion with Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim and so on and so forth. You say, Allah, Allah. And this sunnah is preserved and it, inshallah, gives you the ability to respond to that in a good way. Inshallah ta'ala will stop there. One small request, guys, if we can all uh, vacate the masjid nice and quickly so that they can do their clean up and their tidy up, inshallah. And if the brothers have any questions, they can ask them outside and Allah Azza